Good evening, everyone. If I could ask you to take your seats, we'll go ahead and get started. First of all, welcome everyone. Good evening. I'm Damon Wilson. I'm Executive Vice President of the Atlanta Council, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here this evening for what I think is going to be a very timely discussion on diplomatic leadership and promoting a more just, a more open, and accepting world. I'd also like to welcome everyone who is watching around the world uh, via our, our live webcast as well as online. Um, thank you for being with us. And I want to give a special welcome to Randy Berry, who will be our keynote speaker tonight. Uh, thank you for being with us, a uh, special envoy for the human rights of LGBTI persons at the Department of State. Uh, Regina, Regina Jun, who is the president of Glyfa, uh, one of our co-hosts for this evening, uh, who will take the stage in, in just a moment to introduce our pan panelists. And Gautam Raghavan, who's going to be our moderator for the evening, the vice president of policy at the Gill Foundation and former White House LGBT liaison. Um, in 2001, I think many, most people in this audience know the United States laid out its first ever substantive strategy to promote the rights of LGBT persons in a presidential memorandum which called for the active protection and promotion of LGBT rights at home and overseas by means of foreign aid, multilateral, multinational fora, and bilateral diplomacy. Um, I think we all remember the statement from Secretary Clinton, gay rights are human rights and human rights are gay rights. Since 2011, the United States and many of our allies and partners have been increasingly using public for bilateral diplomacy to encourage and support the adoption of reforms favorable to LGBT rights and to lay the groundwork for increasingly broad spread, widespread attitudinal changes. But I think we've all also seen sometimes that these very same tools to advance LGBT rights have helped trigger or we've seen reactions to them and reactionary responses globally. And in far too many cases, homophobia, anti-LGBT laws have grown and step increase in conjunction with what efforts we've been taking along with many of our partners. So that's what frames tonight's discussion. These unequal results tell us that there's an, a need to revisit this strategy, rethink the ways in which diplomatic actors can promote LGBT rights. Um, and a special envoy, Barry, and our speakers will discuss the ways in which diplomacy can best be used uh, to promote LGBT rights at home and abroad. I encourage all of you who are with, here with us, as well as those online, uh, to join in the conversation through the hashtag LGBT Diplomacy. Um, beyond this kickoff event, we look to welcoming you back to the Atlanta Council on some of the programming that we'll be doing on this set of issues as part of a, a relatively new diversity initiative of ourselves. And just as a personal note, this is the first uh, LGBT diplomacy event we've done at the Atlantic Council. And I'm proud of my institution for that. I'm proud of the support of our board of directors. Walt Slocum is with us tonight representing the board. Thank you very much. And I'm also proud as an out manager here at the Atlantic Council for what this says and how it's signaled to the, the, the efforts that we've been undertaking with our own staff, our own experts, uh, and our internal uh, efforts on diversity here. And finally, for the substantive issue as it informs the set of issues that we as a council work on at, uh, uh, here every day. So without further ado, I want to turn the podium over to our co-host tonight. So Regina, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this event today. Uh, with a small group, when a small group of State Department employees secretly met in a living room to oppose the discriminatory policies against LGBT employees 24 years ago, I don't think this was what they had actually on the agenda or they had even imagined. So it is an incredible honor to be here to actually have this event with everybody in this room. And Glufa is very proud and humbled by the achievements of our predecessors and inspired by the energy and support of our community and also partners to keep this movement going. Uh, we believe that there's a lot of progress that's been made toward equality. And um, we actually still have a lot to go uh, that we have to do within and beyond the walls of the foreign affairs agencies. So today's discussion is really notable and important for several reasons. Uh, we're lucky to host a group of really distinguished emerging leaders uh, we have achieved, who have achieved a lot, but you know, we, they, we know that they got a couple more decades, not just years, to really do more. Um, and our panelists are Carrie Hannon uh, and also Mario Skuncha, both of who are the deputy chiefs of mission representing their respective countries, uh, the United States and Croatia. Mira Patel, who promotes science, technology, innovation, and partnership 
at the U.S. Agency for International Development, which carries out U.S. foreign assistance to, extend, to end extreme poverty and promote resilient democratic societies around the world. And the discussion will be moderated by Gautam Raghavan, who has tirelessly promoted LGBT rights at the White House under President Obama, and now as the Vice President of Policy at the Gill Foundation. So we know that it's going to be a really engaging discussion where each person will really bring a different perspective, background, and also experience that will enrich the dialogue. And also, lastly, very importantly, uh, we hope the discussion is a beginning of many more dialogues and partnerships that we'll have with many of you who are in the audience around the world. And we all know that there's still much to be done to secure a more inclusive future for all of us. So um, the panel discussion will follow immediately after the keynote remarks. And speaking of keynote, uh, let me, it's really my honor to introduce our keynote speaker, Randy Berry, who many of you already know. Um, he has, he's the department, US Department, a State Department's first ever special envoy uh, for the human rights of LGBTI persons. And in this unique role, he actually brings amazing wealth of knowledge. Um, he has served as the U.S. Consul General in Amsterdam, Consul General in Auckland, New Zealand, Deputy Chief of Mission in uh, the U.S. Embassy in Kathmandu, Nepal, and he's actually served in Bangladesh, Egypt, Uganda, twice, and South Africa. So needless to say that he is incredibly well suited for this position and we're very thankful to have him. So please welcome Randy Berry. Good evening. Uh, let me start out by, uh, by thanking uh, the Atlantic Council and also uh, thanking Glyfa and its president, Regina Yoon, for pulling together uh, tonight's event, which I'm really uh, excited to participate in and to uh, have the opportunity to exchange uh, some, some ideas. Uh, you should know that as a State Department veteran, uh, I have been around for 23 years, so I missed the 24-year <laughs> discussion that uh, Regina mentioned. Uh, but I have been around for a while now, uh, and uh, I am a loyal Glyfa member uh, as well as Special Envoy, so Regina is my president, and uh, we're happy to have her here. Uh, I had the chance to listen to another president today, uh, this one being uh, the one that lives down on, uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, we are having currently down at the State Department our Global Chiefs of Mission Conference, which is an annual gathering of, um, of, our, of our chiefs of mission from around the world. Uh, normally that is headlined by our Secretary of State, John Kerry. Uh, today we were pleasantly surprised to have uh, the President drop by the State Department for half an hour, uh, which, was, uh, which was quite motivating. And I wanted to start out by, by just uh, including a, a quick excerpt of, of something that the President said in talking to the chiefs of mission uh, globally and how we uh, promote and project American values and policies abroad. The president said, uh, we've got to keep standing up for citizens who are striving to forge their own futures through free and fair elections and open government and insisting on the dignity of all people, insisting on the dignity of all people so that we're respecting human rights around the world. Uh, that to me is a pretty clear uh, indication from a leader who has been truly exceptional uh, on these issues uh, in the United States. You know, in the past uh, 12 months that I've been, uh, I've been in this particular job, I've had the chance to travel a lot, uh, 42 countries and counting, uh, to advance the US government's foreign policy position that LGBTI rights are at the very core of our human rights agenda. And I give a lot of speeches and have a lot of meetings. And some of them are pretty easy ones. Um, I remember just a year or so ago when I was brand new on the portfolio, I was asked to go down and uh, address a conference, the annual conference of the American Jewish World Service. Um, which is doing so much around, uh, around in, in the U.S. And, and abroad to promote LGBTI rights. Headed uh, back then by the very formidable Ruth Messenger, who's one of a very short list of people who I'm actually a little bit uh, afraid of. <laughs> it was a large room, packed hundreds of volunteers and workers from AJWS uh, working on their broad civil society programs. So I was a little intimidated, right? I was brand new in the job. It was a big crowd. Um, being new, I was still internalizing our policy and how to present it and how to respond to the questions that discussions inevitably yielded. Um, I'm still learning that, by the way. 
Um, but ultimately, uh, it turns out that I didn't have a great deal to fear. Uh, I emerged more or less unscathed from the interaction, I'm happy to say. Um, and it was, after all, a pretty friendly audience. And I'm very proud to tell you that this being one of my first times out of the gate, um, I got a standing ovation that day. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I thought, so cool, all of my, all of my meetings should be met with, uh, with, with such reaction. Uh, but in the, in, in the interest of full disclosure and transparency, I feel that I also need to note that I received that standing ovation before I spoke, <laughs> before I even stepped on the stage. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us very little about my oratory skills, so keep your expectations in check. Uh, it also uh, doesn't tell you much about um, the subtleties uh, of our approach, which has been very, very important to me. And it tells us very little about the breadth of opposition that uh, we should have been prepared to encounter uh, during this first year as we waded into more turbulent waters. What it did indicate, and continues to, is that there is broad and enthusiastic, enthusiastic support for the United States on this key human rights priority. And I will tell you that that type of enthusiasm and support extends in a very uniform way across uh, organizations here where we have very strong partnerships and across civil society actors in many, many countries abroad. That's very important. It's very important because they are so critical to our own, our own work. Since defending and preserving civil society space and doing no harm is at the very core of our efforts, our partnerships with civil society are not just important to us, they are vital. By the same measure, some of the messages and conversations we've engaged in the, in the last 12 months were not so easy as that uh, AJWS speech, uh, and were definitely not preceded nor followed by standing ovations. Luckily, that's not uh, the motivating factor here for us or for any of our partners and friends. What motivates us is the chance to promote great positive change in our world, to see the evolution of a fairer, more just humanity, and frankly, that will come slower than any of us would like. But make no mistake, change is coming to our world. It is coming as surely in Jamaica as it did in Malta. It is coming in Malawi just as surely as it did in the Netherlands. And it is coming to the Balkans just as surely as it came in Sweden. What it takes to see that change through, gradual though it may be, is a concerted, consistent effort by the community of like-minded nations with the support and engagement of civil society, communities of faith, businesses, and others. Diplomacy is an essential tool as we find the path to greater inclusion. I've had the unbelievable chance to see it all evolving uh, in, just, in just 12 months and know that global change is truly underway. It is threatened, I have to say though, as great and positive change often is, by countervailing movements, and there is plenty to be concerned about in our world today whether that's emanating from Russia, from Uganda, or from Indonesia. Through a short-term lens, we can see a daunting landscape in those countries I've just mentioned and many others. Attention to those crisis spots will demand our attention and our smart action if we are going to see longer-term change eventuate. As Regina said, you know, when she mentioned that 24-year mark, I, I was just, um, I'm amazed that it's hard to conceptualize that that, that much time has gone uh, in, in our recent memory where security clearances could still be revoked for foreign service officers just for being gay. That's extraordinary. It's also difficult seeing, seeing what change we have in the, in the past, uh, in the past um, few years to conceive of the fact that it was just over four years ago that President Obama declared LGBT rights as a foreign policy priority for the United States government. It's equally hard to conceive that it was just over four years ago that Secretary of State Hillary Clinton at the time delivered that groundbreaking speech in Geneva that provided and continues to provide the foundation and the shape of our engagement on the human rights of LGBTI persons around the world when she said, quote, it is a violation of human rights when people are beaten or killed because of their sexual orientation or because they did, do not conform to cultural norms about how men and women should look or behave. It is a violation of human rights when governments declare it illegal to be gay or allow those to harm, who harm gay people to go unpunished. It is a violation of human rights when lesbian or transgender women are subjected to so-called corrective rape or forcibly subjected to hormone, hormone treatments 
or when people are murdered after public calls for violence against gays, or when they are forced to flee their nations and seek asylum in other lands to save their lives. That sounds pretty timely, doesn't it? And it is a violation of human rights when life-saving care is withheld from people because they are gay, or equal access to justice is denied to people because they are gay, or public spaces are out of bounds to people because they are gay. No matter what we look like, where we come from, or who we all, we are all equally entitled to our human rights and dignity. Now these changes, these innovations just a few years ago came about through some pretty amazing acts of leadership. And it's obvious to me that this kind of leadership is something that should motivate and inspire us all. It's why I'm particularly humbled and honored to be speaking with this group today. Um, uh, I've had the chance uh, in, in my interactions earlier today to, uh, to see two uh, real titans of uh, policy evolution within the State Department. Uh, one of those is an old friend and our, our current ambassador to Vietnam, Ted Osius, uh, who uh, joined the Foreign Service just a little bit before I did, uh, and who led the movement for greater equality within the U.S. State Department. Uh, he was also a founding member of, of GLIFA, uh, one of our co-hosts for this evening. And that impactful action that was taken by President Obama and Secretary Clinton back in 2011, uh, well, one of the principal architects of that policy, Ambassador Dan Baer, uh, has also been here in Washington today and had a chance to talk with him earlier. Uh, we're also uh, joined here today by representatives of organizations and governments that were at work on the equality agenda a long time before we came to the party. That is a commendable leadership that we have to acknowledge, we have to learn from it, and we need to build upon it. In these few minutes, just before uh, we turn over to the, our esteemed panel for discussion, I'd like to comment on three key issues or principles as they pertain to the work we undertake that have uh, had some meaning for me over this first year uh, in engaging uh, in a number of capitals. The first thing is that leadership and visibility matter, and it matters greatly. These twin issues are obvious both when they are present and when they are not. I've already outlined the case in the US where that kind of leadership has clearly made a substantial difference. But all you'd need to do is ask my colleague uh, who was on the panel here from Croatia tonight about how leadership was exhibited in his own country. It's a pretty compelling story. Look at Malta where there's been a massive shift in public policy and public perceptions over the last few years. That was led by a, very, a single very impactful government minister. We certainly look to the leadership of our ambassadors and our embassy and consulate staff in the field all around the world to advance our work. I had a chance during one of my recent visits, in fact, facilitated by, by the embassy, to meet with a former head of state uh, who was on record publicly of changing his position on LGBT issues after the conclusion of his time in, 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 in office. Um, that gave me a chance to ask him in a, in a brief pull aside, what was it that changed his mind? And what he shared with me was a very simple, a very common coming out story that he had had with a young lesbian uh, from his home country. It was remarkable to me only because of this. It was remarkable to me because it was the most common story that we all know that is repeated every day a thousand times a day. It was heartfelt though, it was personal, and it was an, a supremely human story that has the capacity to change the mind of a leader just as much as it has the capacity to change the minds of our families and our friends and our coworkers and those who care about us. I believe that in any society, visibility is perhaps the single most important act a person can take. But outing oneself in too many parts of today's world opens a door not only to ridicule and harassment, but far, far graver consequences. Beatings, jailings, rejection from families, societies, and executions. I've had the chance to see some very brave and very visible individuals in my travels. None more so than a young transgender woman I recently had a chance to meet in Turkey, who, though herself a victim of absolutely unspeakable violence, was continuing in her public work and continuing in her fight for her rights through the courts, despite significant threats to her own security and continued harassment but she was also fighting for the rights of all those transgender individuals who will follow her. Her brave visibility demands our respect and our support. Um, I keep that conversation and that interaction with her very much in the forefront of my mind because it matters and it matters deeply. 
Second, broad partnerships matter. Equal, equal dignity under the law is not going to occur in our world because the United States or any single state wants it to be that way. Our best and most effective manner of approach is, in, is to ensure that we are working transparently, clearly, and through the support and development of coalitions and the actions of other global leaders. This is a global issue and it demands a global response. In that vein, 24 countries and one observer state now comprise the UN's core group on LGBT rights. A dozen countries are now contributors to the Global Equality Fund, an alliance of like-minded governments, businesses, and foundations supporting, tangibly, struggling civil society organizations in 50 countries around the world. That alliance will expand to 16 or more by the end of the year. And July's upcoming International LGBTI Conference, the first major meeting of governments, international organizations, and civil society that will occur in the Southern Hemisphere in Uruguay, is also expected to be the most diverse to date. Leadership in the Human Rights Council on this issue has, over the past several years, been provided by the Latin American contingent. Chile, Uruguay, Colombia, Brazil, Argentina also has supported these efforts. The Organization of American States has created the position of a special rapporteur, a role which other organizations and entities are now reviewing and mulling. Businesses are consistently escalating their engagement on international LGBTI issues, as IBM, Citibank, and Deloitte are proving. Major LGBTI-oriented business organizations and groupings, such as the HRC, Human Rights Campaign, Out Leadership, and Out and Equal are making key contributions and convening opportunities to discuss workplace inclusion and move the ball. In the UK, Outstanding and Open for Business are engaging partners in providing research and publications to support more inclusive policies, as is Workplace Pride based in the Netherlands. The Economist has recently launched a prominent media event called Pride and Prejudice to kick off a sustained focus on the business case for inclusion. I firmly believe our prospects for success are greatest when we lock our hands with these partners, when we extend a hand to those governments, those businesses, and those organizations that aspire to become partners, and to give a hand up to civil society actors and organizations. Our success lies substantially, considerably, in our ability to build, encourage, maintain, and support those, or those coalitions. And let me be clear. These are not coalitions that the United States seeks to lead singularly, but rather to act in concert with our partners, both as their supporters and as their equal. And lastly, approach matters. You know, I'm frequently asked uh, when I'm abroad and also when I'm here at home if it's hypocritical for the United States to be engaging on these issues when we obviously still have work to do at home and we still have work to do at home, as, as, as many of you know. And the honest response to that is that it would be so only if we lacked the humility, only if we lacked the ability to take an honest look and have an honest discussion about our own history. As Secretary Clinton noted in her speech back in 2011, and an observation that I think is extremely important, is that no one has ever abandoned a belief because they are forced to do so. This work is going to require direct engagement in an open manner to bring the conversation, and I repeat, a conversation to the basic tenets of equality and dignity under the law. It means discussing equality issues with religious leaders in a place like Jamaica, for example, even when the conversation is fraught. It means discussing the economic ramifications to exclusion, not as a threat, but as a development partner wanting to see economies grow and thrive. It means discussing equality of access to healthcare when it provides the only opportunity to engage on LGBT rights in some places. It means being creative in the manner of our engagement, as Ambassador Power recently was in taking a number of her UN counterparts to the Broadway play Funhouse. Our approach must be flexible, though our policy must not. While we are working on a clear policy that aims to minimize violence and discrimination against members of our community, we must be nimble enough through our own approach and by tapping the strength of our partners and the coalition of governments, businesses, and civil society to engage in the manner most likely to achieve results. To conclude and to turn it over to uh, Gautam, ultimately we have to use our diplomatic might for the benefit of civil society. This was the story in the United States. 
These are the types of organizations that will see through progress on these vitally important issues of equality if they are given the chance and the capacity to do their work. We try to do no harm, but we should never confuse that with doing nothing. So thank you all for inviting me tonight. All right, well, thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for uh, our, my fellow panelists for being here as well. I'm really honored to be here. And Regina, you said earlier that the founders of Glypha 24 years ago might not have imagined that this was possible, but I do think they hoped that something like this could have been possible. So it's really a testament to uh, the work of, of so many of you here that, that we're here, and, and thank you to the Atlantic Council for having us. Uh, before getting started, a, a couple quick reminders. First, uh, this is an on-the-record event, so please speak and comment accordingly. Um, second, as, as David mentioned, you're welcome to tweet along with us using the hashtag LGBT diplomacy. Uh, if you hear something you like or don't like, quite frankly, um, let us know so we, you can follow along. And last, please have questions ready. We want to go to audience Q&A quickly. Um, and the worst thing in the world is when you switch to audience Q&A and there are no questions. So please, for us, have, have some questions ready. Um, we have a terrific panel here with us today. I think some of you might have bios, but just really quickly, Carrie Hanan is an incoming uh, U.S. Deputy Chief of Mission to Luxembourg and has 15 years as a Foreign Service Officer, including tours across the Middle East, India, and South America, and previously served as Vice President of Glyfa. Did I get that right? And yes. Currently. And currently. So there you go. Um, next to her, Maria Skunsa. Did I get that right? Thank you. Uh, is Deputy Chief of Mission uh, of Croatia and also diplomat with nearly 20 years of service under his belt, including post and postings at the mission to the UN at the OSCE, and is a proud member of GLINT as well. Uh, and finally, Mira Patel is senior advisor at the Global Development Lab at USAID, uh, and recently served as senior advisor at SBA, and before that as uh, special advisor on Secretary Clinton's policy planning staff, where her portfolio included LGBT rights. So please give them a, a warm round of applause to welcome them. Uh, my name is Gautam Raghavan, and as, uh, as mentioned before, I currently serve at the Vice President of Policy at the Gill Foundation, and previously served at the White House as President Obama's liaison to the LGBT community. Um, and like many of you, I've been thinking about the elephant in the room, or the donkey in the room, depending on your <laughs> partisan affiliation, uh, which is this upcoming election and the end of this, this administration. How many of you have seen this video that went viral recently of this like five-year-old girl bawling because she heard that the president's leaving office? Anyone? Show of hands. So a lot of folks saw that. Uh, that pretty much encapsulates how I feel about the end of this presidency. And I think it's safe to say that uh, this Obama administration has done more for LGBT equality than every previous administration put together. Uh, and that is certainly true of the work that has been done in terms of international LGBT human rights. Many of you in this audience have been part of that change, and certainly all of our panelists have as well, and have witnessed it unfold from a policymaking perspective, from the impact it's had on their careers, um, and the impact it's had on the global conversation about equality. So my first question for all of you, uh, and we'll start, Carrie, if, if we could with you, is as we look back on seven years of progress under this administration, what do you believe has been one of the most significant developments in terms of advancing the conversation about global LGBT human rights? Thank you. Thank you to the Atlantic Council, to everyone who's here, to Glyfa, which I'm a member of, so I'm really thanking myself. Um, uh, I, there are so many things that Special Envoy Barry mentioned, but I think I'm going to say something that's a little bit out of out of the norm, which is all of the people-to-people -people engagement that the State Department has, has taken on in order to reach out to civil society and LGBTI activists on the front lines through our Fulbright and our IVLP program. I currently, I am a public diplomacy officer. I work in the Bureau of Educational Cultural Affairs, and I have seen such an enormous amount of work done to find those activists and to empower them to, through alumni, through networking, to find ways so that they can be stronger and give them the tools and the connections that they need to do the work they're doing. And I just, I think it's extraordinary what we've accomplished. Absolutely. M Mario? 
Well, um, I would uh, say in the last seven years, looking from a bit of abroad, of course, uh, being foreign diplomat here, and uh, Glint again, I have to mention my Glint again, because this is the uh, counterpart of Glyfa by the embassies. Um, uh, seeing uh, from the outside, I think uh, what happened here is the, uh, the, the, the meeting of the uh, outside actions of the U.S. and actually internal situation in the U.S., uh, which is the top-down uh, leadership uh, that was White House and Secretary Clinton at her time in the State Department, but also the bottom-up uh, uh, people's uh, approaches towards the, the LGBTI issues in the States, which finally resulted in the Supreme Court uh, 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 decision, uh, and I think once those two uh, uh, met, there's uh, there has been amazing uh, credibility, and uh, uh, and actually uh, the strength of the U.S. Uh, LGBT uh, uh, foreign policy uh, uh, arguments because. You cannot have one without another. It was always this top-down, bottom-up uh, when they meet. Uh, before you had the leadership, but you know it was kind of lagging. And it, as the special envoy mentioned before, you could have been uh, questioned on it. But once those two coincided, um, this um, this has um, happened, and this was really the, the most positive and the most amazing uh, in the history. I mean, I remember when I was here last time. This is my second time in DC. I came here in 2002 in a deep, deep closet, okay? So this is absolutely a total change, and I'm here at Atlantic Council discussing with DCM of US, the Luxembourg, I'm like, this is like, I don't know, is this actually real? <laughs> you know, so, um, but of course, at the same time, uh, the, the other sign of coin is this amazing extreme uh, rise in, uh, in, in negative developments in some countries, uh, which I don't know if this was a reaction to the positive reactions here, uh, the positive developments that we had in, 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 in this part of the world, in Europe, uh, or not, but this is kind of, uh, this is where we are now. Amazing, positive, and then, of course, the, the extreme on the other side. And we'll come back to the, the backlash piece, but Mira, please. Yeah, so you asked for the most significant developments. I think, like children, you're not supposed to pick a favorite. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think it's important to actually looked just before the Obama administration. So in 2007, Ambassador Michael Guest resigned from the Foreign Service to protest the conditions for LGBT diplomats and their families. Just two years later, the Obama administration came in and changed that, and Secretary Clinton changed that. We can talk more about that. I, in 2008 and 2009, the United States refused to sign on to a UN uh, resolution, simply calling out for states to stand up against the harassment, violence, and persecution that people face because of sexual orientation and gender identity. The United States refused to sign on because our laws did not align with that. The Obama administration changed that February 2009. So I'll say that we have a long way to go. We can talk about the number of countries that have criminalized from 2009 to now. I think five, six countries have, have decreased their criminalization. Uh, but I think far more importantly is what this president and the secretary and the current secretary of state have done to imbibe LGBT rights for employees, for LGBT Americans, and for people around the world throughout every single policy. Because it's like unleashing a gremlin. You pour water and it just multiplies, right? <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's stay on that because I think you, from your, your previous vantage point at the State Department, you had a, a great perspective of how things unfolded in the early parts of the administration. So. How, how did that happen, right? Like, we, we think about how big institutions change, whether it's in, in corporate America or it's in, um, in federal agencies. Um, what, in your opinion, were the key components that made that kind of change happen so that now it's, it's just how we do business? Yeah, so I came in with Secretary Clinton in March of 2009, and there was virtually nothing for LGBT employees, virtually nothing in terms of LGBT human rights policy. And I, in mid-2009, I, I worked with Council for Global Equality and others and we kept hearing, you know, there's, there's a growing movement, right? It was a happy circumstance of this consensus that was building beyond the United States and also a secretary who actually had experience with the LGBT community who had marched in a pride parade who knew a bit more about this space than the average U.S. diplomat. And I say that because I'm partnered with one, so I can, <laughs> I can criticize them a little bit about what they, what they were allowed to do in 2009. And so I wrote a memo to the secretary saying, you know, here's the global situation. Uganda, in particular, was dire and was rising in terms of awareness, although it was certainly just in websites. It wasn't in the mainstream news yet. And from that memo, we built an agenda of LGBT people, allies, GLIFA, others, that focused on three components, policy, communication, and funding. And from policy, that ranged from 
uh, building out our equal employment uh, protections to include transgender people. We were the first major federal agency to do that. Now that's a given. That was not a given at the time. Um, passports, we can talk about that. I think that was incredibly important for US transgender people. Um, but most importantly, I think in terms of the policy side of things, the secretary issued guidance that went to every post and resulted in over 80 different events, speeches, funding at consulates, embassies all around the world. And for about a third of those, and mind you, that's within one year of us getting to the State Department, for about a third of those, that was the first ever public LGBT event that was ever held in that country. Uh, that all built up to the, the president's uh, fantastic uh, LGBT memorandum which was historic in its own right. And you know, obviously, she spoke at Pride. She talked privately to ambassadors. She did a lot of the, the public engagement um, externally and then also internally. Uh, and then we backed it up with funding. And so I created the Global Equality Fund because I think all of this wouldn't happen without the teeth of money. And at mm -hmm. the end of the day, if you can get the private sector and the public sector together to partner on these issues, I think you get a longevity that lasts beyond administrations. And that's uh, what I see happening now. And that's what I hope will happen in the future. Yeah, all which underscores, Randy, your remarks about how coalitions and leadership exactly. matter so much in this work. Um, Carrie, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about, about uh, Ambassador Guest, and, you, uh, you know, when I was at the White House, we had a saying that people are policy, and that's certainly true of our Foreign Service officers. Um, given your service in Afghanistan, India, Latin America, your involvement with GLIFA, from your perspective, how has this changed life as a Foreign Service officer? How does it um, change the kind of role that you can play in as part of your service? Yeah. Um, you know, when I joined the Foreign Service in 2001, I had a closed-door conversation with my career development officer about where it was going to be okay for me to serve mm. and how was I going to communicate it to the embassy. And to my first two postings, I was the first person to bring a member of household, which was what we called our partners when we went overseas because we, they weren't mm -hmm. our spouses and we couldn't legally marry. Fast forward to 15 years later, and I'm bidding on the deputy chief of mission position because that's how we get our next job. And I was openly stating that I was an LGBT um, I com community member, and it was seen as a, a positive. It was seen mm -hmm. as I was bringing diversity and value to the job, and the bureaus want that in the in their in their. Um, in their personnel, because mm -hmm. because what can we do? We not only can be the diplomats that everyone is, and all of our diplomats across the embassies are working to promote LGBTI rights because it is a part of our foreign policy, but the LGBTI person is a visible member of the community that for some of the governments where we're working, they're not interacting with LGBTI individuals. They're not having a chance to talk to us and hear um, our stories, to, to work with us on issues that are important to us bilaterally, whether they're LGBTI issues or not. Um, another thing is that it, it has not actually been a part of my my portfolio, but I do bring a perspective, and I think diplomats who are LGBT do, because, for example, when I was in Argentina, I did a cultural program. I was a PD officer, but we reached out to a trans community in Salta, which is a conservative area in the north of Argentina, that had never been reached before, and we were able to have a conversation with them about what it was like to be. Now, Argentina has, it was ahead of us on, on LGBT rights, but in the conservative areas outside of the city, there was still a lot of discrimination going on. And this was the first time that someone had come to them, talked to them, and then the political section was able to follow in and report on that, and it made an impact on our relationship with the government. So it's, I think it's really important to empower LGBT diplomats in the larger community where everybody is really supportive of the policy that I have found which may not have been the case 10 years ago, to, to try and work on these issues. So we've heard, obviously, from, from Mira and Carrie from their perspective, uh, you know, from, from within the State Department. Mara, I'm curious, from, from being here now twice, well, many times in DC, I think, right? Uh, but twice. Um, you know, from, from sort of the outside, uh, as a Croatian national, as, as a diplomat, um, what, in your opinion, what, what can we learn from each other, essentially, when, we, when it comes to doing this work? What can we learn from Europe and what's working there or not working? And, and what, what do you feel like are the takeaways from what's happened over the last seven years here? Well, I think definitely between the US and Europe, or EU if you want, uh, there you can compare it on lots of levels. Uh, we have a European Commission in Europe, which is the sort of you know, top government that uh, is uh, dealing with some issues. Uh, that are also uh, delegated by the, the, the member states. And you have the 
central government here, of course, and the member uh, and, the, and the states. Um, I, I would say that the interesting thing for me is that in European Commission you had the constant of positive leadership towards the member states and the highest standards uh, from the uh, the most western northwestern member states of the EU have been uh, uh, really leading the agenda and commission has been gladly implementing this and introducing these uh, rules so for the rest to follow um, it has been a top down somewhat uh, and uh, but the the key thing here is that it has been a constant for a while now um, in the US you had 7 years of positive top down leadership um, and again, there's also elephant or whatever animal in the room. Uh, you have mm -hmm. elections coming up. Uh, you know, so our commission is technocratic. It stays positive. It introduces the best. Uh, but for me, the question that we should all uh, address now is uh, the reversibility, potential of reversibility. Mm -hmm. uh, gay rights are not linear. Uh, there's nothing linear about it. Uh, the, what we have today doesn't mean we'll have tomorrow if we don't protect it, even in the societies that have achieved it. Uh, people are generally, uh, in most democracies, frustrated with the way the electoral system is working, and you have increasing cases of uh, direct democracy, i.e. referenda, and the referenda, as you may know, do not favor minorities. Whenever you have the majority decide in, in the way of a referenda, whoever is vulnerable minority is not likely going to fare well. In Europe, we have increased, increased cases of these cases of referenda. And um, this is uh, where you, know, you have kind of your institutional referenda with your uh, candidates here, um, which are almost um, in, in that regard creative. Uh, but it, it's really the question of uh, how can the top-down uh, leadership be protected uh, from resurgence if it happens uh, uh, on a grassroots level if it's not prepared. Uh, perhaps my country, which had a really brave leadership, top-down, is a good example because my government, if you look at uh, ILGA Europe map, Croatia is like number six or seven, which is like the greenest of the green, which is really good. On the, on, uh, on the ground, the people, the LGBT community doesn't feel that green as ILGA would, would let you believe. Uh, but the, the, the legislation is amazing. Uh, however, what happened to my government, uh, they didn't pay attention to the grassroots. Uh, and what happened there was there was this uh, movement and the uh, referendum call by 600,000 people. Okay, country of 4.5 million people, 600,000 signatures, uh, people collected to uh, have a referendum to define marriage as union of a man and a woman. Uh, total surprise for the government. You know, very good leadership top down, but total, uh, they missed it. And they didn't react in time. There was a referendum. It was 51 to 49, which wasn't too bad, but still the, the government lost. And now we have this constitutional um, arrangement. But of course, the government introduced quickly civil uh, unions and everything else to compensate for this loss. Um, you know, the other case would be Ireland with, ama with, with amazingly uh, much better run uh, uh, campaign. Uh, and you all remember this video. Uh, where the family members bring their grandpa, you know, grandma, mothers, sisters, aunts. I mean, this is probably one of the best pieces of PR, especially in LGBTI uh, advertising. But I think the, 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 the backlash, the setbacks, the potential of uh, not taking it for granted, we should be really learning for each other. That's for me is a key Absolutely. thing. So I want to ask um, all of you about uh, something that we see here at home and, and internationally, which is despite the progress that, have, that has been made uh, here and abroad on LGB rights, um, both here in the US and abroad, trans, intersex, uh, gender nonconforming people remain amongst the most vulnerable and marginalized folks in, in our global communities. So what specifically can the diplomatic corps do to advance rights for, for this part of our community? Whoever wants to start. Sure, well, I'll, just, yeah. I'll just start because obviously the, the global context is complex on, on this particular sure. area. And um, one, one message I would implore you to take as you uh, interact with LGBT folks in this country, particularly folks who can benefit from having a federally issued ID that accurately reflects their gender, is that the US government will give you a passport that reflects your ID simply with a doctor's note. And that's when you can't change your driver's license, when you can't change your birth certificate, you can get a passport. And please tell people, I don't think enough people know. And for me, I think that was one of the most important things the State Department could do for uh, transgender Americans, and I'm really proud of it. 
and the, I, the global yeah. picture. I, yeah. I well, defer to my I colleagues. Think, I think we need to do what we're doing to support LGBT, LGB rights around the world. It, it just has an extra component because in a lot of places, the safety of the T community, their decision whether or not to be um, visible has to be taken into consideration. But if you can meet with them whenever possible mm -hmm. um, and listen to what they need to be empowered in order to uh, make the changes they want to do, that's the only way we can really have the conversation. I also go back to um, every time a T uh, a transgender or intersex um, diplomat serves abroad, it's mm -hmm. one more person that's visible showcasing the, the power of the contribution sure. that they make. And Mario, from your perspective, have you seen, what do you think we can be doing better or more of? Well, I think, you know, uh, considering the position of LG, uh, it's really business class situation, you know, compared to a first class, you know, seat compared to the, the transgender people. It, it's still, this is really the last, uh, the, the latest, if you want. Uh, this is the, the problem that hasn't been even touched. Uh, uh, I think governments are struggling with it. Uh, in Europe, we have been arguing uh, strongly for inclusion of I in LGBTI mm -hmm. as well. Uh, but um, again, with visibility, more, if you could have a colleague who is transgender, and present him uh, and, uh, to, to, to your other colleagues, I think that's the best uh, possible example. The same thing as, exactly as uh, Carrie said uh, with the LGB people. And let, let me ask a quick follow-up that's relevant, and, and I, then I want to switch to audience Q&A, so I hope you're all ready with your questions so it's not awkward for us up here <laughs> on the stage. Um, but as a follow-up, you know, we've, as, as many folks know, we have um, eight now openly gay ambassadors, including several who are here in the front row, ambassadors, hello. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but something that I think that most folks know is that we, we still don't have uh, out women, people of color, or trans folks in our diplom in our, at that, that level of our diplomatic ranks. Um, so my question is, I think we can all agree we, we need to do more and better. Um, how? And are there, what are the system, systemic or, or institutional barriers that are preventing more people of color, more women, more trans folks to be, to be able to be picked for those jobs or to rise through the ranks? I will that's say, a really hard, that's a big no, question, no, no. so. I mean, it's a, it's, a num it's a numbers game. I mean, we need more women and people of color in senior positions, regardless of whether or not they're LGBT. Um, so we have to continue to make the efforts to mentor and sponsor women and my, uh, people of color and get them up the ranks. Um, the, there, within that subset, there will be LGBT members of the community. I also, I also think that the, I have seen the State Department make an effort to promote diversity. I really think they are there and doing their best. We need to meet them halfway by preparing people. I know um, it's a personal mission. I know lots of my colleagues to, to reach out to other, to other diplomats that are coming up and keep them in the Foreign Service so that they can rise. Mm -hmm. In the A100, the last three or four A100 classes, there have been five, six LGBT diplomats, uh, and LGBT. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're there. We just have to keep them in and get them up to the top because I think the department will meet them there and yep. give them the opportunity to lead. It's just going to it's going to take time. Yep. And that's across all society. Absolutely. Yeah. Mario, awesome. Mira, anything to add to that? That was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, why don't we why don't we switch to audience Q and A if there are questions? Um, and there's one here. I think we have mic runners too. So. And if I could just ask you to uh, identify yourself and, and keep the question short, please no life stories. Thanks. <laughs> there we go. Good evening. Hello to old friends. My name is Brian Dalton. I'm a former president of GUFA and retired from the Foreign Service, so now I can speak more freely. <laughs> um, my concern, uh, my greatest concern, especially when I was representing the U.S. abroad, was the role of U.S.-based organizations, especially religious and faith-based organizations, as part of the backlash. Uh, so I don't know if you could, among you or some of you in the front row, could talk about if there positive energy meeting this, I'll call it a threat, and do we have to worry more about this than we already are? I do know how um, local activists in my, my rec most recent post in Southeast Europe uh, really felt the brunt of the money and the influence that these groups were bringing to bear all as a matter um, behind the scenes. This was not public and well-known. Uh, some foreign governments, you know, 
weren't even aware on whose behalf they were acting. Anything you all can say about that? Great question. Anyone up here want to take a stab at that? I know there's a couple folks in the audience who could probably answer that too, but uh, can I, please. Can I take it first, uh, but then please feel free. Uh, well, you know, I come from a country that has been in a transition, Croatia transition from, you know, the, the war, uh, the communism to uh, the NATO EU country. Now, and I have to say that uh, Croatia is not the, 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 the perfect example, but, it, you know, it's neither east or west, south or north. It's kind of there. And uh, the, the point where I'm mentioning it is the strength of civil society. Uh, when you have a, uh, countries uh, because you need civil society to work on these issues, especially because you need them to uh, push from you know bottom up. Uh, but when you have a weak civil society, uh, what happens is that you have uh, foreign countries uh, in, in actually now Croatia is in that role in other countries uh, and you know uh, State Department is absolutely uh, active in this and other you know Northwest European countries uh, uh, the old members of the European Union uh, what they do you know they support the local civil society to work on these issues uh, but if there's sometimes you have to be very careful because if there is no genuine uh, uh, homegrown civil society, you will have business disguised as civil society that will take money from you and just like just uh, make the problem even bigger or last longer just to be able to get the money. They're not interested in, in actually fundraising locally, uh, seeing if there's interest in, in, in a population. They would just write to the embassy of Sweden or you know some some uh, uh, some European you know uh, commission or the uh, U.S. embassy and ask for the money. And you know they would write whatever. They're usually smart people. You know they they, they would kind of write the projects right enough so to get them get the money. The other side of that coin is that uh, the other side can get to them easily with the money as well. And as you mentioned, South South. Eastern Europe, um, we had situation recently on some uh, ecological issues uh, referendums uh, where somehow the energy solutions from 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 uh, they were actually favoring uh, favoring uh, the, the Western European uh, you know markets and connection and benefit for these countries failed because there was a pressure of ecologically. Uh, you know, ecological NGOs who are actually supported by some country in the east uh, of those countries, uh, which we'll not name here. But you know, this is uh, this is the problem with with, with with the civil society for me, and and it happens in all uh, in in all the countries where it's weak civil society. If you have to be aware how to build them, how to make them self-sustainable and genuine, not just some uh, donor uh, uh, donor uh, uh, that some people who just uh, depend on donations. Uh, I mean, that's Europe, Africa, wherever you go. I think, anything else to add from either of you? I think that's a, it's a great answer, and I, I, I would uh, suggest that you connect with some folks here in the audience from Human Rights Campaign, Council for Global Equality, Human Rights First, that have done work on this, too. I think they might have even more for you. Other questions? Yeah, Celise? Well, can we get you a mic? One sec. Thank you. I'm Celise Berry with Outnequal Workplace Advocates, and uh, one of the best practices that we uh, encourage uh, companies to do is, is LGBT self-ID, to identify yourself as an LGBT person, uh, because our message is that if we're not being counted, then it sends a message that we don't count. So to kind of piggyback on your uh, question about diversity as the State Department in conversation about that in terms of employees uh, offering a self-ID op option. We, we have, HR is looking at ways, I'm going to correct me if I'm wrong, cause, but HR is looking at ways to, to survey employees whether or not they're LGBT. It hasn't in the past been a category that they asked, so we didn't know what percentage we were. The U.S. Aid has done it. And so the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey has yeah. And it, they identified five five percent people. It was five percent, wasn't it? What uh, identified as LGBT or T? So and just repeat, pretty if, high. if you didn't hear, uh, the thought. Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey has yeah. an optional question about LGBT identification. So yeah. I think I saw a question back there. Yep. Hello, uh, my name is Vanessa Calva I'm from the Embassy of Mexico and also a member of Glint. I was wondering if you could share with us a little, a little bit more of the experience that you had uh, while developing and creating Glyfa, and if you had uh, somewhat of a difficult path or track in order to, you know, just uh, 
create this group of members of Foreign Service. I think a couple of the countries uh, that we have been working with, uh, mine included, in which certain rights and topics have been advancing, you know, now, now it's something that we uh, also, as member of the Foreign Service, we're trying to see, you know, how to advance within our, our, our own group. So if there, if you could briefly just share some of the thoughts so that you thought would be useful. I think we useful. might put Ambassador yeah. Osius on the spot a little bit yeah. since he's sitting right here and was, was there. If, do you mind handing him a, a mic? <laughs> Thank you. Um, Brian is also uh, a founder of Glyfa. We, we, it was difficult at the beginning because uh, at the very beginning when we got started, we started because we didn't want to lose our jobs. Uh, there was kind of a witch hunt going on, on and uh, there was sort of systematic, they were systematically finding out who was gay and then taking away our security clearances. And we just wanted to do our jobs. So the, at the beginning, it was motivated simply by how can we stay in this profession that we love? And uh, after uh, Secretary Christopher came in and, and finally sexual orientation was no longer grounds for losing your security clearance, we began to think a little more ambitiously and think about how can our families be treated like other families? And that became sort of the effort for really the next decade. Uh, and when uh, President Obama came in and Secretary Clinton came in, it was you know manna from heaven. We had support at the highest levels. And the, the day that uh, Secretary, you, you mentioned uh, that when Secretary Clinton came to that Pride event and, and she celebrated the 20th anniversary of Glyfa. And we looked around and we just couldn't believe it. You know, that the senior leadership of the department was all there and they supported what, what we had been trying to make happen for, for 20 years. And I've seen this happen differently in other places. This is not necessarily the way it should go. Because in, in other places I've seen where it wasn't necessarily affinity groups that made change happen, but actually human resource departments and companies have said, we want all the talent we can get. We want talent from everywhere and we don't want to be exclusive because it's good for the bottom line. And I think someone mentioned, the, oh, Randy mentioned the, the uh, Economist Conference. There are company after company has seen, well, if you want to attract and keep the best talent, you should keep the best talent. And actually, I think actually the State Department has finally come around to, to that position as well. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Kerry, do you want to add anything to? I, I would just add that um, Glyfa has also still continues to try to reach out to women. I mean, this is still an ongoing issue because we know they're in the we know they're in the State Department, but getting them involved and helping to advocate for the issues that are specific to lesbians and transgender women is is difficult. So it's an ongoing it's an ongoing effort to keep Glyfa relevant, I and mean, we are relevant. But getting our members to come to us and work with us. Great. Great question. So. We, we didn't set that up, but it was great. So, there's a question but we put uh, you there for right it. in the back. And then we'll go over there. Yeah. Hi, Ashton Giese um, with Outright Action International, formerly the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission, and a former board member of Glyfa as well. Hi, you all. Uh, I just wanted to ask, because I was in the uh, uh, administration, well, I was w working for the government back when, back during the Bush administration, and things weren't great then. So what, what is, uh, has, have things been institutionalized enough? Uh, are there things that we need to do, and, and generally among governments, like, because they, they are obviously going to change, what can be done to make sure that uh, LGBT rights uh, stay, stick around for all of us? Great question. So from, from the human rights perspective, I and others felt like LGBT rights were part of our work on gender, were part of our work on security, were part of our work on economic development. And if you look at anything related to gender that's come out of the State Department in the last six years, it includes LGBT issues. Sometimes it's buried in there, but it's in there. And I think that kind of meshing of, of related issues really matters for making something a policy and not politicized. You agree? Okay, okay. great. Uh, I think there's one more question back here, and then we'll we'll come up here. Sorry, I'm making you run, get your exercise. Thank you. Appreciate that. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Ryan Ubuntu Olson, and I 
uh, have met many of you through my work through the International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia. I currently work for an inter implementing partner of USAID called Palladium. And my question for all of you is, looking forward, how do we, uh, where do you see us going specifically in the strategic directions of how we inform our work, particularly when it comes to really listening to and hearing people in the global south who, for many of them, security and safety are the biggest issue versus some of the things that we in the West may consider. That goes all the way down to even identity politics here in the US. We're using LGBT, but a lot of our counterparts globally are using SOGI or even gender and sexual diversity. These nuances, while seemingly small actually can have a huge impact, especially in our foreign policy and the work that we do. And so what are the efforts that we can do to have more engagement with those civil society stakeholders at the local level, but also really tap into some of those academic folks or folks who have really been studying human sexuality, gender fluidity, and really strengthen our approach through these more nuanced ideas that have been lending themselves out lending themselves out to our movements socially in the West. I think a big part internationally is the conversations that are now able to happen inside of embassies that are often hosted by ambassadors or whichever person holds the portfolio, but often the ambassador attends. Those conversations are with academics, local activists, and that's where we're able to gather information um, about what it is, what's really happening on the ground, how are people self-identifying, what are some of the challenges they're facing, because it changes between um, country to country. And that kind of nuanced approach that there's not one solution fits all goes back to what I said earlier, which is we have to, we have to be listening to them because we cannot take the same approach in every country. But the fact that we're approaching it now with a finer edge and we're trying to align our policy locally because we have global cover to what needs to be done on the local level empowers us to collect that information. And then it also goes back to how are we gathering that information. The report that the UN does, um, reporting by each embassy back, having a centralized office that can gather that. that that's just the government perspective. But we're going to be talking to civil society. The fact that it is an important issue means that we're having the conversation with civil society here as well as abroad. All of that feeds into a, a, a feeds into us understanding the situation better than, of course, having the office of the special envoy is a place where we can uh, funnel it and he, we can travel him until he collapses from fatigue. <laughs> <laughs> Mario, Amir, anything to add to that? No? So I would just say one thing. I think that we've talked a lot about Secretary Clinton and President Obama, but I, I don't think this was as a top-down strategy as it seems on, on face. We, I hope Mark Bromley will agree with me because he's in the room. Uh, we worked hand in hand with activists in every single country we were operating in to ensure we were hitting the right note and making sure that we were operating in a way that bolstered their efforts, that didn't threaten their safety, and that, um, that the funding went directly to them. And I think it'd be remiss if I didn't use this opportunity to acknowledge our ambassador to the Dominican Republic, Wally Brewster, who's sitting right here, who's <laughs> been a hero, I think, to many of us in this room. Often in, um, often in very challenging circumstances. Um, I think we have time for one more question and then we'll, we'll close out. Do you want to or? Actually, pretty eloquently covered my question already. Oh, terrific. You good? And so last question right there. You've had your hand up for a bit. Hi, my name is Anne Sophie. I work for the World Bank on citizen engagement. Um, I'd like a little bit of a visioning question. When we meet in here in 10 years, where do we stand? What are we celebrating? And how did we really get there? So again, I didn't plant this question, but this is sort of this is, this is sort of the closing question. So why don't we combine that with with my closing question for all of you, which is um, which is you know we talked about the last seven now eight years of this administration, uh, looking ahead to whatever comes next. Um, what without making any partisan predictions about what's going to happen, what one piece of advice or recommendation would you give the next president of the United States in terms of how to carry this conversation further? Do you want to start? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Mira? Yeah. All right, Mira, go, go, go for it. I'll, I'll take this. I think market power represents enormous potential. I don't think we use the private sector enough and the sway that they have and the different avenues and channels they have to governments where they have the power over tens of thousands of jobs in a country and what that means for uh, making the best business decisions, what it means to extend rights to employees in a country, they can come out in an entirely different way than a government. Uh, 
As a side note, and this has been lost to history, the US House of Representatives in 2011 sent us a bipartisan letter of commendation around our efforts around LGBT issues. So if you look at the US House of Representatives now, I have to think that government is probably not where we should be looking in 10 years. I think the private sector is probably the most efficient and the most progressive place moving forward. Well, if I could advise the American president, yes. uh, <laughs> from my position, I would just say, uh, be careful, uh, do not play politics. This is human lives. Uh, first, as Ryan said, it's security for some people. Then we have protection, and then we have the, the inclusion and equality. So it's really different levels uh, wherever you look at. You know, something for us is something else. Uh, but definitely, uh, I think, hopefully, that uh, the message will be that this is universally important and worth of uh, keeping that sense. And I think despite the rhetoric that is used and the, the fear of backlash against the LGBT um, community and gains, that the arc of history leans towards equality. And I think I like to believe that the, the horse has left the gate and we're not going to be able to put it back in. So I would advise the, the which whoever leads the administration that they keep the special envoy position at the State Department institutionalized and strong and able to travel and, and to stay engaged with the international community and that they do everything they can to prevent a domestic anything going backwards on the domestic policy because we need to we need to walk the walk and talk the talk and if we if we aren't doing everything we can domestically how can we try and lead internationally with our partners around Great. the world well all good advice thank you to all of you please join me in giving them a round of applause thank you And thank you again to Glippa and Atlantic Council for, for hosting us. Uh, it was great to be